Hi, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. I wanna welcome everybody to this episode of The American Idea. Today, we're gonna be talking about really one of the most important documents in American history, uh, a signal event in the trajectory and course of our country and the realization really of our founding principles, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. But I think what we're gonna find today is the, the magnitude and grandeur of the idea of emancipation in contrast with the actual text of the document itself and the interesting way in which that emancipation is proclamated uh, on January 1st, 1863. To join us for that conversation is an old friend of myself and of the Ashbrook Center, a person who's been involved with the center for many years uh, in teacher programs, in student programs, and as a scholar, uh, your friend, my friend, a great expert on Abraham Lincoln, Dr. Jason Stevens. Jason, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me back. Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. If, if Lincoln is known for anything, he's known for the Gettysburg Address, and he's known for freeing the slaves, as it's said. In fact, I'm think, I think of Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, and it, it's set, spoken, as you know, from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial mm -hmm. in 1863, uh, 1963, but he says five score years ago, a great American, and then he talks about, of course, Lincoln's speech. Uh, and he calls him or refers to him, as many did at the time, as the great emancipator. So Lincoln is so well known for the Emancipation Proclamation, but I suspect that probably not many of our listeners, certainly not many Americans, maybe a few more of our listeners have actually read it. So I want to take a few moments today with you, if you don't mind, to just walk through the Emancipation Proclamation and remember its its ideas, remember its arguments, and maybe think about the ways in which it shows us Lincoln the statesman mm. and not just Lincoln the president or Lincoln the orator. Um, can we start with this? The Emancipation Proclamation, um, the historical context of it. Mm. It's to me, it's noteworthy. It's January 1st, 1863, the first day of a new year. Why is it January 1st and what's been happening in the Civil War up until that point? Do we get to January 1st, 1863? Yeah. Uh, first of all, yeah, I, I agree with everything you just said there, Jeff, about the, the importance of the Emancipation Proclamation and especially how it particularly demonstrates Lincoln's prudence, his, his statesmanship. 
Uh, I've been on uh, the American Idea podcast before, and you and I have had uh, a conversation on here about the the Gettysburg Address. And and there, I think uh, you and I talked about the Gettysburg Address as an example of Lincoln the poet, right? The Gettysburg Address, second inaugural, the two speeches etched in stone at Lincoln's Memorial in Washington, D.C. Those are great examples of Lincoln the poet. The Emancipation Proclamation is an example of Lincoln the lawyer, or even better, Lincoln the prudent statesman. And in fact, a, a lot of students I have found um, will, will mistake um, the Emancipation Proclamation as one of those speeches of Lincoln's that's right permanently etched in stone at his memorial in DC because they right, give it this, this great importance, right? The Emancipation Proclamation, it's so important. It must be there, right? Engraved in stone at his memorial, but it's, it's not. Um, it, it, right, it's conspicuously missing. It's the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural that are there, not the Emancipation Proclamation. Maybe we can get into later why, why that, that, might be, that might be the case. Um, and I also think that right, if you were to ask the, uh, the average student about the Emancipation Proclamation, um, right, I, first of all, I hope they've heard of the Emancipation Proclamation. Right? In this day and age, that's not exactly a guarantee. There's no guarantee. And even if they, they have heard of the Emancipation Proclamation, right, they may be tempted to think that, oh, well, it, it didn't really do anything significant. It didn't really free any of the slaves or even worse. Oh, it was right, a, an act, uh, a, an unconstitutional act right, by Lincoln. It was, it was not justified legally or, or constitutionally. It, it demonstrated that Lincoln was somehow a tyrant in, in, in this regard. It's, it's really sort of you know, scary what you what you will uh, will hear regarding right popular opinion on the the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, so maybe we could try to correct some of that. So th th that's really important. So th there's a kind of myth busting right here, which yeah. is on the one hand people say, oh, the Emancipation Proclamation it freed all the slaves. On the other hand, other people argue the Emancipation Proclamation didn't do anything important and it was even wrong or unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. uh, but take us back to the last days of 1862. We're in the middle of the Civil War. Lincoln is contemplating emancipation in some form. What's happening in the Civil War then? And what, what is Lincoln thinking about? Yeah, great question. So I'm not really big on, on dates or setting a timeline, but here when you're, you're contemplating the Emancipation Proclamation, a, a timeline of significant events is, is really, really important, I think, for putting the, the proclamation into historical context. Uh, so, right, as, as most of your listeners probably know, Lincoln, way back in March of 1861, when he delivers the first inaugural address, he repeats his policy in regards to slavery, that he has no power and no inclination, no authority, no inclination to touch slavery in the states where it currently exists. He's only determined to keep it out of the territories. But over the next two years or so, during the progress of civil war, Lincoln begins to change his mind in regards to emancipation, not in regard to his, um, his lifelong belief that slavery was morally wrong. He always hated slavery. He was always anti-slavery. If slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong, Lincoln famously said. Um, but the war begins to change his mind about whether or not he has the constitutional authority to touch slavery in the states currently in rebellion, uh, given the progress of the war. By summer of 1862, July 12th, um, 
He made uh, an appeal to the border states for compensated emancipation, uh, which failed. This was one of many efforts of Lincoln's to try to achieve emancipation, not through decree, but through persuasion, right? Trying to persuade the the, the border states. And, and when you say border states, remind our listeners who that would mm -hmm. be in 1862. Yeah, the border states are those with slavery, but have not joined the Confederacy. So uh, Missouri, Maryland, uh, Delaware, um, Missouri, Maryland, Delaware, and- um, Kentucky? Kentucky, thank you. Yeah, Kentucky, yeah. I, 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 I hope to have God on our side, but I must have Kentucky, Lincoln said. So he fails to persuade the border states to, to voluntarily give up slavery. And the very next day on July 13th, um, he meets um, with Secretary of State Seward and Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells. They're actually on their way to the funeral of the infant son of Secretary of War Edmund Stanton. And these three, Lincoln Seward and Wells, have sorry, an off-the-record conversation where Lincoln revealed that after much thought, he had come to the conclusion that emancipation was, quote, a military necessity, absolutely essential to the salvation of the Union. And within, I don't know, another week or so, by July 22nd, Lincoln makes this sentiment known to his entire cabinet. He convenes a meeting of his cabinet to read aloud to them a preliminary draft of his Emancipation Proclamation. And Lincoln is consulting with his cabinet here in July 22nd, 1862, not to get their advice on whether or not to issue the thing. Uh, Lincoln had already made up his mind. This was a done deal. He simply consulted with his cabinet to say, you know, make suggestions as far as, right, the wording and the language and how we go about this. But the end goal of emancipation, that is already set in Lincoln's mind. And every member of his cabinet endorsed the resolution, right, to varying degrees. But the best advice was offered by Secretary of State William Henry Seward, who said, right, my whole heart is in this. We're with you, Mr. President but you need to wait for a victory on the battlefield before issuing your proclamation. Because if you issue it now, right, in the summer of 1862, where things are going so badly for the Union, you issue it now, it will seem like the last gasp of a dying power. Issue it from a position of strength, not of weakness. Please wait for a victory. And Lincoln's reaction was, you know, holy cow, that's, I never even thought of that. That is great advice. And so Lincoln reluctantly puts the Emancipation Proclamation uh, draft away in his desk and waits for a victory, which will come um, on September 17th, 1862. So about two months later, the Battle of Antietam. Lee right, goes into to Maryland uh, and is driven out. It's a Union victory. It's a costly, Ferric Union victory, but it's a, a victory uh, nonetheless, the one that Lincoln had been waiting for. And by the way, right, the Battle of Antietam, the, the deadliest day in American history still to this day, and also Constitution Day, September 17th, Constitution Day. Oh, uh, yes. The Emancipation Proclamation is tied to the Constitution in more ways than one. Then, then, the, then the 17th comes the victory at Antietam. Uh, someone mm -hmm. called it a great and terrible day. Yeah, um, but that happens 
then he issues a preliminary emancipation proclamation about five days later i think on september, on september 22nd what's yep. this about a preliminary emancipation proclamation i think again probably some of our listeners didn't know that lincoln issued an emancipation proclamation before he issued an emancipation yeah. proclamation yeah that's a great point yeah so after the victory of antietam lincoln finally he goes back to his desk gets that preliminary emancipation proclamation out issues it on september 22nd 1862. And the, the preliminary emancipation proclamation, it doesn't go into effect right away. In fact, it says in a hundred days, the emancipation proclamation will go into effect. And a hundred days thence will be January 1st, 1863. And essentially, I'll just paraphrase here, what the preliminary emancipation proclamation says is the states that have, that are currently in rebellion against the United States, they have 100 days to rejoin the Union. In such a case, if they rejoin the Union over the course of the next 100 days, nothing will be done in regards to their slaves. We'll, we'll welcome them back with open arms. However, in 100 days, July, January 1st, any states currently in rebellion against the United States that remain in rebellion at that time, at that time on midnight, January 1st, 1863, any slaves residing in those states currently in rebellion against the United States will be thenceforward and forever free. Hmm. Okay. Momentous language. Is the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation put out in newspapers and broadcast around the country? Yes. What's the reaction? Yeah, there are different reactions in different parts of the country, right? So in the North, among abolitionist circles, uh, there is jubilation. There is celebration. Um, right, all of their life's work has been about this moment, even though for many of the abolitionists, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation came too late or later than they would have preferred. So if you ask a guy like Charles Sumner, Massachusetts senator, uh, prominent abolitionist, he was in favor of Lincoln freeing all the slaves the moment the first shells hit Fort Sumter back in, in April of, of 1861. Lincoln will say, look, if I do that, the war is going to be lost. All the border states are going to go over to the Confederacy, and we can't win this war without those border states. Um, but mostly among abolitionist circles, yeah, it was it was jubilation. Frederick Douglass, uh, right, he his whole heart was in it, but he expressed some disappointment with the language that Lincoln employed in the document, sort of this lawyer-like legalese speak speech instead of sort of a a, a moral rhetorical denunciation of slavery. Douglas was a little disappointed. He he didn't get that in the document. Outside abolitionist circles, though, in the North, I mean, opinion is much more mixed. Um, there is, right, there is great racial prejudice in many places, not in just in the South, but in the North as well, right? And as a result, uh, there were those in the North who denounced the Emancipation Proclamation, right, as a decree from from a tyrant. They worried that it would lead uh, to uh, it, it would lead to race wars. They were worried that it would lead to the mass abandonment of the army, that soldiers would en masse throw down their weapons, refusing to fight a war that they thought was for the preservation of the Union, now transformed into a war for, for abolition. In the South, one word can sum it up. Outrage. Outrage. Um, this, the did this prove to them that what they thought all along which was Lincoln was going to attack the institution of slavery, even in their own states. Yeah, yeah, that was that was the belief among many Southerners that you see, we told you that Lincoln was 
right, going to take away our slaves. And we were exactly right. And we were therefore right to leave the union uh, to get away from that. So in the time between September 22nd, those 100 days from September mm -hmm. 22nd to January 1st, what happens? Anything of significance up until that date? Does Lincoln rethink the Emancipation Proclamation because there's this blowback? Mm -hmm. Or is he fortified in his conviction? What happens in those 100 days? He is fortified in his conviction. Like what, even when he went to his cabinet on July 22nd, he told them, right, I, I am issuing this. I've thought this through more than anybody else. This is happening. I just right, need your advice as far as like the logistics are concerned. After it's issued on September 22nd, um, Lincoln said, I would rather die than take it back. Right. And what happens there in the latter part of, of 1862, of course, are the, the congressional elections which Republicans do not do well in, right? They lose, they lose seats in that congressional election. And that could be counted up to some of the dissatisfaction in the North with the, with the Emancipation Proclamation. And the, the limited progress of the war, uh, of, of course, is a, is a factor in that as well. But at no point does Lincoln think about rescinding the Emancipation Proclamation. He said, right, if that were to happen, it must be the work of somebody else in this office, not me. So he's issued this Emancipation Proclamation telling the slave states, right, they have essentially, right, 100 days to come back into the Union. Uh, of course, none of them do. Let me read then, because January 1st arrives. The situation mm -hmm. hasn't really changed, as you say. The political situation remains the same. The military situation, I mean, the Union does have the victory at Antietam. Um, you called it a Pyrrhic victory because of the terrible losses. And I, I suppose there are some other advances by the Union, especially in the West in those days, but still the military situation is not fundamentally changed by the time you get to January 1st. But nevertheless, Lincoln does go forward with the proclamation. And for our listeners, let me just read a little bit of this first paragraph and get your thoughts on it, because it's striking to me, the language. He, he, he talks about, uh, whereas in the year of our Lord, 1,862, a proclamation was issued by the President of the United States, referring to his earlier Emancipation Proclamation, mm -hmm. containing, among the other things, the following to wit, that on the first day of January, in the year of our Lord, 1,863, all persons held within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof then shall be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then thenceforward and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons and will do no act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. And then he goes on in this January 1st proclamation to say, now, therefore, I, Abraham Lincoln, president of the United States, by virtue of the power in me vested as commander in chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, in time of actual armed rebellion against the authority and government of the United States, and as a fit and necessary war measure for suppressing said rebellion, then he does issue the proclamation. Explain to us why Lincoln, you called it Lincoln the lawyer. I hmm. almost feels to me like Lincoln the Supreme Court judge. <laughs> yes. What? Explain to us the argument or the, the reasoning that Lincoln has here in these opening lines of the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah, one of one of Lincoln's harshest critics in the 20th century, Richard Hofstetter, uh, famously wrote in, in 1948 that the, the Emancipation Proclamation 
has, quote, all the moral grandeur of a bill of lading, end quote. And a bill of lading is like a laundry list of right, supplies that a ship would carry, right? In other words, this is not the Gettysburg Address. It this sure doesn't the, sound like The it. second inaugural. Right, right. Well, why, why is that? Um, I think the main reason is that, well, first of all, this is, um, this is a, Lincoln the lawyer writes this speech because there is a concern that this is going to be struck down by the courts. And Lincoln does everything in his power using right his superb legal mind to try to ensure that that wouldn't happen. This was an act that Lincoln not only just thought, deep, thought deeply about, but consciously tied back to the Constitution. He was worried about making the constitutional argument in favor of the Emancipation Proclamation. At the very end, the second to last paragraph, he says, and upon this act, sincerely believed to be an act of justice, warranted by the Constitution upon military necessity, I invoke the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of Almighty God. It's strange that right, Lincoln's sort of obsession with the Constitution and making this document conform with the Constitution, that this would be the act that right, so many years later, scholars and others are focused on criticizing Lincoln for breaking with the Constitution. What those critics don't understand is that Lincoln, this was a man, this was a man of the Declaration of Independence. He was no less a man of the Declaration than he was of the Constitution, right? And Lincoln, the lawyer, here in this in this uh, in this proclamation, he does everything in his his power to ensure that this won't be struck down by the courts as as an unconstitutional power grab by the president. Especially that long paragraph in the center where he goes through, and right painstakingly lays out, okay, where in the country the Emancipation Proclamation will apply and where it will not. I mean, it's right? really he, remarkable. Well, I'm just looking at it here in that paragraph. Mm -hmm. it says, you know. Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, and then in parentheses, says, except the parishes of St. Bernard, Plaque Means, Jefferson, St. John, St. Charles, blah, 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 blah. It's mm -hmm. bizarrely detailed. Why he goes through so... county by county. Yeah, county in... by county. <laughs> or parish by parish in Louisiana. Why is it so specific about where slaves would be freed and where they wouldn't be freed? Yeah, that's a good question, right? So the Emancipation Proclamation is only going to apply to those areas currently in rebellion against the United States. So it's not going to apply to the border states, we know that, but it's also not going to apply to those portions of the states in rebellion that are not actually in rebellion right now, but are under a right are, are under the United States military, right? So so uh Benjamin Butler down in New Orleans. Um, what will later become West Virginia, right? Those several counties of Virginia in, in Western Virginia that are not in actual rebellion against the United States. Those counties are all listed here, each one in the Emancipation Proclamation. Same thing with those parishes in Louisiana. They're not actually in rebellion against the United States. So if they're not actually in rebellion, then the Emancipation Proclamation will not apply there. It will only apply to those areas that are in rebellion. Okay. That paragraph makes that clear. Why is that? Why did Lincoln own free slaves in places that were in rebellion? Excellent question. Right. So for Lincoln, the answer is that the Emancipation Proclamation is justified under the Constitution by Lincoln's powers as commander in chief of the army and navy, what we might call his war powers, what Lincoln himself called his war powers, meaning that some acts that would otherwise be illegal in a time of peace may become legal if they were absolutely necessary in order to preserve the union, 
that they were that it was a military necessity. No such military necessity for emancipation exists in those areas not currently in rebellion against the United States. It would only exist in those uh, states or portions of states where a state of war actually existed. Without that state of war, the Emancipation Proclamation cannot be justified as a fit and necessary war measure okay. for preserving the Union. So from Lincoln's point of view, what's the military necessity of freeing slaves in the states and places in rebellion? Yeah, basically twofold. One, you deprive the South right of a free labor force, right? They had recruited the the slaves into the army not to fight, of course, right, but to right work as laborers, right, to dig ditches, dig trenches, right, to, to serve meals, to to take care of the army. Um, you can deprive the enemy of a right of a necessary prop. Second, those slaves once emancipated right, flee north, and we can begin arming former slaves and freed blacks and having them join the, the Union Army. In fact, by the end of the war, more than 200,000 freed uh, American blacks joined the ranks of the Union Army. Before we continue with our discussion, I'd like to let you know about an outstanding set of programs that Ashbrook sponsors for high school students, the Ashbrook Academy. Do you know any students with an interest in American history, politics, economics, and literature? Do they enjoy being academically challenged and the thrill of engaging with different ideas and viewpoints? Hi, I'm Sabrina Maristella, Student Programs Coordinator here at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Academy is a series of summer courses for rising high school juniors and seniors. Held in person at Ashland University, the Academy immerses you in the American story like you've never been before. Since 2015, our approach has taken history out of textbooks and into students' lives with historical documents and conversations about those documents. If you are a rising high school junior or senior, or if you know someone who is, we invite you to learn more about our courses and apply today at ashbrookacademy.org. So that's why there's this paragraph at toward the end of the Emancipation Proclamation where Lincoln says, and I further declare and make known that such persons of suitable condition, meaning slaves who have escaped, right, hmm. will be received hmm. into the armed service of the United States to garrison forts, positions, stations, and other places, and to man vessels of all sorts in said service. So there's hmm. Lincoln, the commander-in-chief of the army, saying if, if, if uh, African-Americans make it to you in the army, you must receive them and put them to work for the army. If they make it to you in the Navy, you must put them to work in the Navy. Uh, so we're going to supply our armed forces mm -hmm. with these folks. Yeah. Okay. So it's taking away military assets, so to speak, from the Confederate States armies, and it's taking away and it's adding military personnel to the United States Army and Navy. Yes. And he's saying, as Commander in Chief, I have the power to do that. Yes, exactly. What? Right, because he is charged with saving the Union. That was his oath of office that he took to preserve the Constitution of the United States, to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. And he says, in my judgment, this act now at this time is absolutely necessary to fulfill that oath to save this government. But what's really interesting to me is in the proclamation, he says they are free and henceforth and forever free. Yes. So he's not saying, well, okay, 
they're free while it's necessary for the war but then mm -hmm. maybe when the war is over or if peace comes or if there's some kind of treaty then they have to go back to being enslaved he's like nope they're free forever now yes the promise being made must be kept lincoln said and that also raises the the specter of the 13th amendment right so if if the emancipation proclamation right is made on the justification that it's a war measure what then happens after the war ends that's why you need the 13th amendment to complete the story of the emancipation proclamation which i which i hope we can can talk about uh here later on um but just in, in listening to your re remarks there jeff it, it reminds me of um this letter this famous letter that that horace greeley the the editor of the new york tribune had sent to lincoln uh during this this same summer of, of 1862 where he horace greeley called it the, the prayer of 20 millions where he sort of lambasted Lincoln for not acting quicker on the question of emancipation, right? He was right, imploring Lincoln, right? Why aren't you this great abolitionist president that, that you could be? We know you hate slavery. Why aren't you doing more about slavery? And this is before the preliminary emancipation proclamation is issued. It's before anybody knows Lincoln's even thinking about um, uh, em uh, emancipation other than those in his his uh, his cabinet. And Lincoln in his response says something so interesting. He says, right, I will save the union. I'll save it the quickest way I know how. If I could save the union by freeing none of the slaves, I would do that. If I could save the union by freeing all of the slaves, I would also do that. And sort of a, a tip of the cap to what's coming in the Emancipation Proclamation, he says, if I could save the Union by freeing some of the slaves and leaving others alone, I would also do that. And then he concludes the letter by saying, I have expressed to you what my official duty as president is, but that makes no change to my often expressed personal wish that all men everywhere could be free. Couple of comments on this real quick. First of all, that last line about official duty versus personal wish. Lincoln, when he's inaugurated in 1861, when he says, I'm not going to touch slavery where it currently exists, I want to just keep it out of the territories, right? His personal wish and his official duty, right, stand apart. He wants slaves, he wants every man to be free, but he can't just unilaterally free the slaves as president at that time. Because However, he doesn't, by, just to put a fine point on it, because mm -hmm. he does not believe he has the constitutional power to do that. Exactly, exactly. But over time, during the next two years of, of, of civil war, his personal wish and his official duty come closer and closer into contact with each other until they, they eventually overlap sometime in, in mid-1862, 18, according to, to Lincoln's judgment. Because by the, that time, he thinks, now I do have the constitutional power as commander-in-chief to free slaves, at least in the places in rebellion, as he says, a necessary war measure. Exactly. You got it. Okay. The other thing about this Greeley letter is that it has led some Lincoln critics to say, you see, this proves Lincoln didn't really care anything about emancipation. As, as Richard Hofstetter said in 1948, this proves that Lincoln never was much troubled about the slave. He only cared about saving the union. He never much cared about freeing the slaves. This is where that timeline becomes really, really important, right? So this letter to Greeley appears Lincoln's response on August 22nd, 1862, this letter that so many folks might point to to say, see, Lincoln didn't really care about ending slavery. He just wanted to preserve the union. This letter appears August 22nd, 1862. While Lincoln is responding to Greeley's letter, 
the preliminary draft of the Emancipation Proclamation is sitting inside the same desk in a drawer that he's replying to, to that, Greeley. That's amazing. He must have felt, he must have thought, I just want to write Greeley and tell him this, <laughs> but I can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So uh, what is the response to Lincoln's, call it constitutional argument, when he puts forward on January 1st, the Emancipation Proclamation, he says, now I have the constitutional power as commander in chief to do this because it's necessary to win the war and to supply our army and navy with troops. I'm doing it. What's the response of people in the country? Yeah, it's mixed. There's a there's a mixed reaction. As, as we discussed earlier, right, the, the abolitionist circles are, are jubilant. They're overjoyed. Um, those in in the South are, are outraged. Um, but what's particularly interesting are, are those in the in the North who are hesitant to watch a, a war for the preservation of the Union to be transformed into a, into a war of, of, of abolition. And it was um, feared by many that this would lead to right slave uprisings and slave revolts, that it would lead to uh, a mass exodus from the, the Union Army. There was some of that, but not much at all. Right. Some Union soldiers did throw down their weapons and say, I'm not going to fight to free slaves. But overall, the fears of those who were against the Emancipation Proclamation, perhaps not in principle, but in terms of what it could unleash practically for the for the nation, those fears did not did not immediately uh, materialize. So I think of this. He does call it, as you read the paragraph at the very end of the Emancipation Proclamation, he says, he sincerely believes this to be an act of justice warranted by the Constitution. Um, it, it raises to me the question, and I, I'm looking here at this wonderful um, core documents volume from by Ashbrook, Abraham Lincoln core documents, uh, and it's a great collection that we're putting out on the essential documents that we think for Lincoln. And in fact, Jason, you're one of the people who are acknowledged in here as contributing your mm -hmm. advice and counsel to this volume. Um, it, it, this volume makes me think though, um, this volume itself in its introduction talks about Lincoln as a statesman. Yeah. It's an interesting combination, this Emancipation Proclamation. It's not very poetic, but there are a few moments of poetry. It doesn't talk a lot about what's right or wrong about slavery, but there's a moment where he says it's an act of justice. Help us understand the Emancipation Proclamation as an example of what this volume, this Ashbrook volume calls Lincoln's statesmanship. Yeah, great question. It is never easy to give honor where great honor is due. The Emancipation Proclamation, this is an unrivaled act of American statesmanship. Lincoln later said, if, if my name will go down in history for anything, it will be for this act. Um, everybody thought that they could handle the war and the question of slavery better than, than Lincoln could, um, especially those in, in his cabinet. By the, by the end of the war, everyone had become persuaded that, that Lincoln was the man for, for the crisis, right? You had uh, the abolitionists who, right, from the moment that first shell hit Fort Sumter, they wanted to free all the slaves. If Lincoln had followed their advice, if he had done that, the war would surely have been lost, right? And keep in mind, Lincoln's not an abolitionist. He doesn't identify, self-identify, as we might say today, as, as an abolitionist. He is, he's anti-slavery, but he can't, he is restrained by the Constitution, 
And the Constitution simply doesn't give the president unilateral authority to, to, free, to free slaves unless right there's this extraordinary military emergency that the, the Civil War brings with it. It's the anti-slavery, non-abolitionist Lincoln who goes down in history as the great emancipator, as the man who ended slavery. Um, right? Lincoln had, you mentioned it in your introductory remarks, had that virtue of the statesman par excellence, right? Prudence or, or practical judgment or, or, or good or, or practical wisdom, knowing the good that he could achieve given the circumstances that he's facing and being able to achieve the most possible good given the circumstances that you that you find yourself in. If Lincoln had listened to anybody else's advice, the war may have been lost and uh, slavery would not have ended. What if he had listened to other people's advice and not ever issued the Emancipation Proclamation? That's scary to think about. <laughs> That's scary. So, so you mean like if they, if they, if he, those who said to the, this is too much, you're going too yeah. fast. Yep. Shouldn't this is a war to save the union, not to abolish slavery? What are you doing? So the, uh, the other, the other side of the abolitionists. Yes. So there are those who are saying to Lincoln, right? You're you're going too slow. Those are the abolitionists saying to Lincoln, you're going too slow. But then there were others saying, no, you're going too fast, right? Slow down. That was like sort of the, the, um, the anti-slavery, but maybe not necessarily right, pro-Black uh, portions of the North telling Lincoln, like, you got to slow down. This is a war to preserve the Union, not to, not to end slavery. Lincoln, I think, this is where things get right, tru truly muddy. Uh, he sees, right, the object of the Union, um, and the end of slavery, right? As he's expressed in that letter to Greeley, if I can free some of the slaves and leave others alone to save the union, I would do that. If I could free all the slaves or none of the slaves and save the union, I would do that. I think for Lincoln, because his understanding of the union is tied up with the Declaration of Independence and the principles of natural rights and natural human equality, that for Lincoln, the end of slavery and the preservation of the union, right, by 1862 are wrapped up together. You can't have one without the other. And because it was in good... his mind, it was the union was always built on principles of freedom and equality that were in opposition to slavery. The union was not founded on slavery. It was founded on liberty. And so this was a moment where union and liberty come together. Mm -hmm. And it was his job he saw to, to, to act in that moment, to help bring that more fully together within the confines and constraints of his constitutional power as president. Yes, exactly. So let me, let me just tell you a quick story about this. So it's uh, New Year's Eve night um, on December 31st, 1862, right? The evening, right? Just prior to when the Emancipation Proclamation will go into effect at the stroke of, of midnight, there's this great party at the White House. Um, a lot of folks are out there congratulating Lincoln, basically, and Lincoln is right, ends up shaking thousands and thousands of hands right throughout the course of the, the day and the, the evening. Right around midnight, he, he leaves and he goes upstairs to his office, finally now to set his signature to the Emancipation Proclamation. And something that was unique here, Lincoln actually signed his whole name on the Emancipation Proclamation, which was not his custom. Usually he just signed A. Lincoln. But for the truly special documents like the Emancipation Proclamation um, and the 13th Amendment, he signs his, his whole name. But he found that when he went to sign his signature, his hand, because he had been shaking hands with so many people, his hand was like crippled. He literally could not hold his pen 
to sign his name to the to the document. And he said, right, this is not good. This is not good. If I try to sign my my signature with this claw of a hand that I've got, it's going to it's going to look like I trembled. It's going to like look shaky and, and out of place. It's not going to look like my signature. And future historians will take a look at that, like it said, and they'll say, ah, you see, he hesitated. My whole heart is in this act, Lincoln said. And so what he did was, right, he put the pen in his right hand and he grabbed his right hand with his left hand and produced a flawless signature. Wow. Wow. So that everyone would understand for all time, as you said, that he was truly committed to this cause. Right. This statesmanship, hmm. it's a, it strikes me what you're saying is it's a combination of justice, as he says here in the Emancipation Proclamation. And justice means getting rid of slavery. It's com it's that, it's courage, the courage mm -hmm. to do it, right? To have the left hand grab the right hand and make it clear that signature and to persevere to do it. Um, and but also prudence, as you mentioned, yeah. right? That that not just knowing the right thing to do and having the courage to do it, but knowing how to do it in the circumstances Lincoln faced. Mm -hmm. Um it doesn't end slavery though. It ends slavery during the war in those places where, um, of course, the states and counties and places that were in rebellion. To finish it off, you mentioned Lincoln thought there had to be something else, the 13th Amendment. How does the 13th Amendment connect the Emancipation Proclamation? Yeah, good. So first of all, right, those critics who may say that the Emancipation Proclamation actually didn't free any slaves, I think that misses the mark. It does free slaves, even though it only applies to those areas currently in rebellion against the United States. As the Union Army moves forward and starts to conquer those areas or reconquer those areas, those slaves in those places are freed. But the question then is, okay, the courts are going to make mincemeat of this thing after the war is over. If it's a war measure, what happens after the war ends? That's why you need the 13th Amendment. You also need the 13th Amendment because the Emancipation Proclamation doesn't free all 4 million slaves everywhere in the country. It doesn't apply in the border states, right? And it doesn't apply in other certain portions of the Confederacy that are not currently in rebellion against the United States, right? To make, right, to, 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 um, end slavery permanently, right, to stab it with the stake in the heart and, and set it uh, permanently, you need the 13th Amendment. You have to have a constitutional amendment. And at that point, the constitutionality of the Emancipation Proclamation becomes a moot point. So when does Lincoln start working on the 13th Amendment? Oh, he started working on that back in 1864. Uh, the Senate passes it uh, late in 1864. Uh, and the House of Representatives passes it on January 31st, 1865, and Lincoln signs it on February the 1st. Although Lincoln's signature isn't necessary on the 13th Amendment, he insisted on signing it, and he signed That's it. That's right. The Constitution name. doesn't say the president has to sign. It's not like a regular bill, right? That's right. Sign it. But he That's insisted right. so on the 13th, signing it. He insisted on signing it, signed his full name, and the amendment went out to the states for ratification. It will be ratified in December of 1865. Lincoln, unfortunately, won't live to see it. In your mind, then, even though the Emancipation Proclamation needed the 13th Amendment to permanently and forever and everywhere abolish slavery in the United States, in your mind, as a scholar of Lincoln, what's the importance of the Emancipation Proclamation? Yeah, good question. We are right now, I think, 
uh, in the midst of celebrating the 160th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, right? 1863, 2023, I think my math is right there. Um, there's a, I'll, I'll let somebody else maybe answer that question. Um, Hannah Johnson uh, wrote a letter to Lincoln, uh, July 31st, 1863, right? seven months after the final Emancipation Proclamation. Hannah Johnson was a black freed woman um, with a son in the New York infantry. And she had caught wind that right, maybe the Emancipation Proclamation would be revoked. And this is what she, she wrote to Lincoln. Quote, they tell me, some do, you will take back the proclamation. Don't do it. When you are dead and in heaven, in a thousand years, that action of yours will make the angels sing your praises, end quote. The angels have been singing for 160 years now. Wonderful. Really, really, really wonderful, Jason. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today to talk about this uh, fundamental, deeply moving uh, moment in American history and this wonderful American document, the Emancipation Proclamation. Jason Stevens, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org. Dot org.